You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, here we go again. Another week back to the old grind, and that means another week full of hunting podcast coming right to your ears from the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. And uh, today we're kicking this week off with a really good one. We're going to be talking with Jeff Lindsay of the Lindsay Way. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Jeff Lindsay is, uh, him and his dad put out a TV show called The Lindsay Way. And uh, we're going to just uh, BS today a little bit about donuts, how he got into hunting, uh, who his mentors were, and just a whole bunch of other things that revolve around, you know, growing up from a kid who was really passionate into the man that he is today and uh, what he plans to do with his kids as well. So that's what today's podcast is about. Just want to do a couple quick announcements. Number one, if you are listening to this right now, hopefully a lot of you are, Nine Finger Chronicles podcasts are going to be not only on this whitetail feed, but I'm going to be doing some special big game podcasts, and those are only going to be found on the Sportsman's Nation, Sportsman's Nation Big Game Western Hunting feed. So the one you're listening to right now is the whitetail feed, and uh, so be sure to check out all the other podcasts that are on the big game and western hunting feed as well and all you have to do is basically wherever you find wherever you uh download your podcasts or wherever you uh listen to the this podcast all you have to do is search sportsman's nation big game and there i'm going to be uh, starting to post some additional podcasts that revolve around uh big game as well and uh not only to mention the fact that the Transition Wild podcast is on that feed as well, 
and the Sun Outdoors podcast and the Hardworking Hunter podcast. And uh, I've been in talks with some other guys who might be jumping on. So uh, a lot of good content to come. There's going to be some updates to the website coming hopefully in April. And uh, I'm really excited about all those things. I think that's it. Had a good weekend celebrating Easter with uh, the family. Again, ate just, I don't know about you guys, but my family gatherings revolve around food. So I just was like a garbage disposal, a human garbage disposal. And just anything that was in arm's reach got stuffed in my mouth. And uh, I'm pretty, uh, I feel pretty gross (laughs) tonight. So, but tomorrow's a new day. And uh, before we get into the the podcast today, just want to, let's see, the commercial today is going to be Wasp Broadheads. Now, for those of you guys who don't know anything about Wasp Broadheads, made in America from the best possible materials. So um, I can tell you for a fact from just me using them over the years that they are, the materials that they use make them a badass broadhead uh, and not to mention the fact that they're made in the states too. So that's a they're both it's a win-win combination. So if you get the opportunity whether it's a mechanical or a fixed blade, please go shoot a wasp and you can go to wasparchery.com and you can enter the discount code 9fingers and that's the number 9 followed by the word fingers and you can receive 20% off your purchase. So, again, that's another win. So, Badass Broadhead, and you get 20% off because you listen to this podcast. So, there's that. Now, enough of the talking. Let's get into today's podcast with Jeff Lindsay of The Lindsay Way. All right. On the phone with me right now, Mr. Jeff Lindsay. How you doing today, Jeff? Doing great, man. How you doing? You know, I can't complain. I already talked with you a little bit. We got a uh, we, we got the snow. Sounds like you guys got the rain down there in southern Iowa. Right. Yeah. It's a uh, it's a mess right now. Right. So, today we're going to talk a little bit about everything, but I want to kick it off. I want to start it off with something really important. And just by following your Instagram feed, I can tell that me and you are cut from the same cloth, right? I want to I want to talk a little bit about Casey's Donuts. Oh man, (laughs) that's like my second wife. (laughs) They're they're good, man. It's those and Krispy Kremes. They're my top two. So you know, um, Casey's for those guys out there who don't know is a it's called Casey's General Store. It's basically a gas station, and they make homemade pizza and homemade sandwiches and. homemade donuts and so when did you when did you move to iowa Uh, about 12 years ago okay so is that when you were introduced to casey's donuts yes i had you know encountered casey's you know in illinois and kansas a little prior to that um but never really realized they had fresh made donuts (laughs) and and probably until i was there a couple years ago and i really started to get the hang of it you know right Right. Got me in trouble. Yeah. I tell you what, it got me in trouble. Uh I have a desk job. So it was somewhere around t- <laughs> it was it was somewhere around uh two thousand and fourteen. I would grab three every morning with a cup of coffee 
and I'd eat three. Oh man! So it got it started getting out of control, and so I had to give up. So I I, I said I said to myself, I got to give up Casey's Donuts because it's getting out of control. I was treating it like a drug, so I gave it up. And in like three months, I lost ten pounds, and that was the only change I made. <laughs> Just from eating donuts. Just wow, from eating yeah, donuts. Yeah, they were adding up. Now, what kind's your favorite? See, that's uh, that's that was my next question to you. My, I am the apple fritter or the cake with just the plain white frosting. What I about got you. Yeah, what about I'm, you? I'm the cruller type guy. Well, they call it a cruller. Dunkin' Donuts started it. It's called a cruller, but it's just like it's got the jagged edges. I think it's like a French donut. Yeah. It's real light and. Always get two, and then they got them, you know, in caramel or white <laughs> icing or, or chocolate or just plain. So always go in there and I get two. But see, and every time somebody sees me a show, it's like, man, how are you not 300 pounds? You know, from, <laughs> I'm like, look, I don't go and I don't eat them every day. You know, I'm not eating three every morning. Right. Um, but every time I do go in a Casey's, I'm probably getting one, and then I'm probably posting about it, right. you know. So right. I, I don't eat them by the dozen by no means. And I got <laughs> – my metabolism has slowed down, but it is still pretty decent for the amount of food I eat. That's good. That's good. Yeah, um, I have to be active. So is I, – I talk with this all the, uh, to my, my buddies about this, and I'm like, what's your favorite go-to tree stand snack? Or do you bring extra – do you go to Casey's and, and uh, bring, like, the Casey's Donuts into the stand with you, or do you have a different, like, uh, all-day rut-sit snack? I have before. That's to be honest. That's kind of where I got started on Casey's Donuts. Was taking them to the tree stand. I had a. I used to hunt in a little town called Camp Points, first farm I ever bought by myself. And there, between the hotel where we stayed and our farm, there was a Casey's. So we went in there, and every morning I'd buy me some and get them in those these loud, crinkly bags. Which right. we need to talk to management about that, <laughs> you know, because they're so loud. But my favorite tree stand snack is probably going to be, you know, like mini muffins right you know mini muffins or oatmeal cream pies you know we we love little debbies they're probably not good for us but they're cheap <laughs> and you can buy them by the carton load and they're always in the pantry our pantry is always stocked full of little debbie stuff and that'll get you through the season it will it will you usually you know i'll take something somewhat healthy i guess you know water and banana and orange or something and then you know we have like our snacks are meals within itself. You know, you got appetizer, your main course, and your dessert. So we we take it serious. We we were joking we were going to go to Casey's and buy a whole pizza. And like on one of our episodes this year, just get in the stand. Oh, where's the snack? And then just you know pull out from under the seat this big cardboard box. And it's a joke, but that actually would be awesome about ten o'clock in the morning when you know you got to sit that you're going to sit there at a one or two o'clock. I wonder what a deer, what their reaction would be if. All of a sudden, downwind you know, of your stand, they catch just a huge noseful of pizza. If they would run from it, or what they would do, it probably wouldn't be good. It probably, <laughs> they would probably. That's probably not native to the, the the hardwood ecosystem in which they survive. So they probably would get out of there. You have to put a lot of nose jammer on it, right? It absolutely, taste is good. No, absolutely not. Well, changing subjects here because I have a feeling we could go on and on and on about this, but uh, right. we're both very passionate about it. It appears, yeah, absolutely. But you are you and your dad kind of run a television show called The Lindsay Way, and that's kind of where I want to uh, kick it off. Is just a very high level, vague question: 
what is the Lindsay way? The Lindsay way is our lifestyle. You know, it was the best way I can describe it was one day my, me and my dad are sitting around talking, I had my kid and, you know, I'm like, man, I hope, you know, I hope he's going to be into deer hunting and hope he's going to enjoy it as much as I do. Cause I really didn't get crazy about it till I was 12 years old. And he said, well, it's, a, it's totally different now. You know, then we'd go hunting on the weekends or something like that. Now it's a lifestyle. Now it's, you know, besides God and family, it's the next most important thing in our life. And it's just what we live, breathe. You know, we're thinking about it every day. We do something every day or talk about something or plan for something or plant something that's going to affect us in deer season. So it, it's just our lifestyle. And, you know, it's me and my dad and the rest of our family. And our way is just what we do. It's a lifestyle year round. And we and we try to convey that, you know, we, yeah, we try to have an entertaining hunt show, but we try to show exactly, you know, why we hunt and the reasons we hunt and the reasons behind it and the reasons that, you know, compel so many people to, to do it on a weekend or, or weekdays or year round, whatever they do. Right. Okay. So now, now shifting that and going all the way back, you know, you mentioned that you didn't really get really crazy until you were about 12 years old into hunting, but when you know, I take it your dad was somewhat of an influence in in your life when it comes to hunting. When did, when did your dad start getting you greased up? You know, to say, all right, well, let, you know, you can come with me. Did he offer it to you? Did he did he force you to come? How did that how that all go down? Yeah, he was. Uh, it was a little different back then. Like I say, it was it was a weekend thing for him, or after work with with the guys, stuff like that. He'd go to deer camp all weekend, and they're playing cards, and everybody's got the camper and staying around, and um, that was how he started. So it was probably a you know a little more uh, lifestyle that wasn't suitable to you know an eight or ten year old. But he started carrying me when I was seven or eight. I'd go with him a little bit, but I I really didn't care that much about it. I ha- had the choice. I was real close to my cousin, my mom's mom at the time, and every saturday they would be going to the mall or something like that so as a kid that's what that's what i did i just i'd rather go hang out with him at the mall or go play sports or something like that and then at 10 he took me and then i i started to enjoy it i went a little more at 11 and then 12 i was just full-blown i was hardcore what was it that triggered you from just like a mediocre following to boom i'm a deer hunter that's funny. I've never really been asked that question, but, but thinking about it, you know, I killed my first deer when I was 12 with a bow. And I, and I guess you could say about when I picked up a bow, not that that triggered me, but then it was a year round deer, deer deal because, you know, you hunt with a gun, you pick up the gun, it's always sighted in, you know, it's dead 30, 30, it's always on, but the bow, you start practicing in the summer and then you start hunting the, our season in Georgia, the bow season would always open about a month, month and a half earlier than the rifle season. So that got me out earlier. So, you know, looking at it, looking back now, it was probably that. And, and we did, when I was 12, we moved to the, the country. I always lived in a subdivision growing up. And when we were 12, we moved to a subdivision. And um, we were on a 80 acres starting off. And then I think my dad added a little more to it. So I had land in my backyard. We didn't have big deer, but we had land in my backyard. I had a four-wheeler. And I would just take off and go hunting. And, and then that's when it really started becoming a lifestyle gotcha so then it was was it the somewhere around the time where you moved out of the subdivision into the country was was that about when you were 12 years old as well 
It was. Okay. So that, prob- that, that probably helped. A lot happened when I was 12. Yeah. A lot happened when I was 12, absolutely. I joined the, the youth group at church when I was 12. I started bow hunting. We moved to a farm from, from going from one acre to, you know, 80 acres. So a lot changed right then. And, and one of the things that did was I just I lived and breathed deer hunting. Right. So I wasn't very good at it, but I liked it. <laughs> so did, did your, you know, you, you said the term lifestyle. Did your lifestyle then change a little bit as well when you moved out to the country? You started thinking less about the mall and, you know, going out and, you know, hanging with the buddies or sports or whatever to deer hunting? Absolutely, yep. Okay. You know, we got we got cows, we had chickens. There was just there was more excuse to, to be at home all the time then. So thus it led to, you know, afternoon we, we trapped in the wintertime on our farm and um, you know, I was hunting every afternoon. I mean, a lot of my buddies would be going to high school football games. I was going deer hunting, you know. I wasn't going to miss nothing in the fall. Right. Any afternoon I could. If I didn't have church, I was going to be in a deer stand. Right, right. So then, specifically, talk to me about your dad's role as a mentor. And, you know, kind of walk us through from the very beginning to maybe even to where you are today, his role in i guess helping you get started and then teaching you the ways of the hunter if you want to call it that right yeah well he was never pushy you know he would just kind of let me do my thing he wanted it to be fun um you know at the time my mom didn't hunt or you know my sister she kind of hunted a little she's three years younger than me so she hunted a little she killed her deer when she was younger but he he didn't push me you know it was just something if i wanted to go do we were going to go do it um, and he always stressed, you know, it's got to be fun. And, and I was a very, I don't know if timid hunter is the right word, but I would never take the shot. Everything had to be just perfect for me to pull the trigger. You know, deer had to be stopped, uh, no brush. And he was more, more of a killer. He was just like, you know, just shoot, let's get something on the ground. And, and so that's one trait. And he's still to this day is like that. You know, I'm waiting for my, the perfect shot and he's just, he's firing arrows, you know, but right. that's what makes us different. But, um, so that was something that, you know, we, we differ from, but uh, I remember butting heads a lot as a kid. He'd shoot, shoot, even on turkeys. And I, and there was a lot of, I would have killed a lot more deer and a lot more turkeys had I not been so timid, but I was just all about the right shot. I don't know if I was scared to miss or what, but so that, that was kind of the one thing I really remember when I was, I took from him as a kid, just us kind of dis, disagreeing a few times in the stand. Right. Right. What, what about failure? And let's say you as a hunter, you failed either because maybe you missed a shot or you missed a a shot opportunity. Um, and it, you know, I don't know, something bad went wrong, you know, something bad happened. Did you, I mean, did your dad help maybe give you advice or guide you down the path on how to, how to fix that scenario to, so that the next time it happened, uh, you may, may, you might be better prepared. Right. Yeah, I, I had a lot of the failure, you know, and missing shots or not taking the shot. And he'd kind of get on me a little bit. Not not nothing bad. I mean, I was I was more mad at myself. And I I mean, I vividly remember sometimes when I was well, I was a kid and I missed a turkey or deer got by me and I'd be sitting there and wanting to cry. Heck, I probably did cry. And I just and he but he was patient with me. He wouldn't right. he wouldn't make it where I didn't want to go back. And I just 
that is one trait that I hope I can get from him when I'm, you know, with my son is not make it about me, make it about him, you know, have fun and, and don't something that doesn't go as planned not to blow up because I, I kind of do that with my wife sometimes. And that's some days she doesn't want to go hunt with me. So I can, I just hope and pray that when, you know, my son starts hunting, I'm, I'm as patient as my dad was with me. Right. Right. Yeah. That's definitely important. Now, when, you know, as, as a, a father and, and, and son scenario, you know, the mentor at some point has to let the, the, uh, the grasshopper, so to speak, go out on their own, right? When, yeah. when did you start going out on your own, start making your own decisions, you know, you know, hunting by yourself? That was at 12. 12. Okay. Uh, I remember I shot the first, my first buck at 10 and three deer at 11. And then when I started bow hunting, that was when he officially just kind of turned me loose at 12. And he still got a story to this day. I had like a, I don't, I had my little Hoyt bow or PSC. I don't remember what it was at the time. I think it was a Hoyt maxed out to 35 pounds, which is the legal limit, 36, whatever it is in Georgia at the time. And he would take me and put me in the ladder stand. Him and my mom would drop me off the four-wheeler. And, and he tells a story today that everybody we talk about when I was that age um, that my mom would say, you think he'd kill a deer? And he said, no, he, he's not going to kill a deer. He's, just, <laughs> he's having fun. Let's let him do it. And this big mama doe come out. I don't remember. It was like the second week of season. It was probably about a 20, 25-yard shot. And, and my bow, I mean, literally could – barely penetrate skin and her leg happened to just be up just enough that I hit dead in the heart. I mean, it was just a lot of luck. I, I don't think I was a good shot, but it hit right in her heart and she went, you know, 150 yards and died. And he still loves telling that story because it kind of, at that point he knew that I, I could kill a deer by myself. <laughs> so how did that conversation go? Can, I mean, can you remember when your dad, you know, came to pick you up when you were 12 years old and you told him, Hey, I just shot a doe. Was he like, Oh, you're, you know, you're quit pulling my leg or, or did he believe you right off the bat? Well, I wish I could remember. I, I, I do know that that night, um, he was also hunting and he, he shot a copperhead with his bow or something. I, I don't remember. We had a guest hunting that night and that guy shot a doe because we actually didn't find my doe to the next day. Cause she didn't really bleed. You know, only got, two or three inches of penetration probably but right. i remember we found her the next day and you know i got this one picture with her um standing over my you know my bloated doe by the time we found her i don't even i thought think the coyotes or something had already gotten to her but uh i don't i still don't know if he still thought i was capable of handling it by handling it by myself that year but i think all all five deer i killed that year looking back was uh was by myself and i do remember the last one i shot was a button buck and it was like the last day of the season and i shot it and you know we tried so hard we didn't have a ton of deer so we tried so hard not to shoot button bucks and i do remember ending the season on a bad note i remember crying when i found out it was a button bucker <laughs> i don't know if i cried but it, i probably did i was yeah, that was that was a low time in my life gotcha i was disappointed so you know as a kid you know, it sounds to me like hunting was a big priority for you growing up. Then, I mean, I, I hunted when I was, when I was young, but then something happened, right? I became like hardcore. I'm going to use the term hardcore about it, right? Right. Where you start running trail cameras, you start doing summer scouting, you're, 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 you're 365 
You're doing it 365. What age, roughly, was that for you when it's like, I'm going to do this as much as I possibly can every day of the week. I'm going to label myself a bow hunter, and you know, you become hardcore about it. Right. What age was I? Yeah. Probably 15. <laughs> I think I was 15 when I finally just went full bore and um, wasn't missing any days. And yeah, I wasn't old enough to drive, but I had that four wheeler and it would take me anywhere I need to go to hunt my stands. And I remember I killed a big buck with my bow that year. And it was, I think the year before I'd shot like a six pointer or something. But when I was 15, I shot a wide eight pointer, which for our area at the time, it was probably one of the bigger deer we had on the farm so i was i was pumped and now i think i i think my dad started taking everything a little more serious then and we started you know going you know uh, trophy type hunters and and everything kind of went to the next level some right. somewhere around mid 90s okay so <laughs> with that said then as you you know as you progressed as a hunter uh, did your did your goals change? I mean, you, you use the word trophy. I mean, were you after age class? Were you after just bigger antlers? You know, try to do better than the next year? How, how did that go for you? Yeah, it was a long time after that until I, I, I even realized age class, you know, probably. I was just eight points or better. So if it had eight points, it didn't matter if it was a, a year-and-a-half-old eight-pointer, two-and-a-half-year-old eight-pointer. That was a big buck, you know, so – I vividly remember if it, if it was eight pointer, you know, we were shooting it. And back then we didn't have many. I mean, you'd see a couple eight pointers a year. And when you did, that was, that was the ones we were shooting. And, um, that was as big as they got probably because we were whacking them, right. you know, when they were two and a half. But, uh, so age never even crossed my mind until, you know, probably I was about 20 years old and that's when we started saying oh man we got to let them get to three and a half and and that's when you know qdma and all that stuff really started taking on and uh everything really went to the next level then gotcha so what is the what was the next level i mean are we talking like food plots and habitat management that kind of stuff right yeah food plots i mean we really didn't have start probably food plots until you know, I was in my late teens, and, and that even consisted of, you know, just barely running the disc over the ground and throwing out some rye or wheat. You know, that was, a, that was about all we need, knew to do. We'd have a couple big clover fields, you know, but, but not no summer protein, you know, no, no real mineral sites or anything like that. That, that. We were still probably a little ahead of our time that there was only a few people in the country probably smart enough to do that. Right. And okay. we were not one, one of them. <laughs> so, so then, you know, you're out of high school. Uh, you're in your 20s. Uh, were you focused more on bow hunting or gun hunting or just hunting overall? Just hunting. I was one of those, What whatever was in season. I mean, I remember George introduced the muzzleloader season. And I went out and bought a night muzzleloader, you know, so... It was whatever season it was I was going after. And I would carry my bow some during rifle season. But I, you know, having grown up rifle hunting in the south, I enjoyed, you know, a cold, wet day in November when I had a gun in my hand. And, yeah. you know, we didn't kill a lot of deer. But, um, you know, you had it, and it was a way you could go hunt box blinds on the edge of fields and 
you know, see a long way because all of our stands back then were, were homemade. There was, there was no hang-ons. There was no, you know, tower blinds that were fiberglass or hard plastic. They were, they were built out of plywood. You know, we grew up in the construction business. My dad was a builder, so we had surplus wood, and, and that's what we did on the weekends. We'd go in there, and our best areas, we were, you know, banging 16-penny nails and two-by-fours in the, the trees, <laughs> You know, no, no regard for right. sanctuaries or bedding areas. We were just making stands, and if it wasn't in the right spot, well, next year you'd build one in the tree over from it. Gotcha. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, with that next level, you you may you may have started passing some of these younger deer. Was it hard for you and your dad, you know, to maybe pass some of these deer that you were typically shooting? every year those first couple of years until you kind of built up the age class of deer that you wanted on your farm yeah i wouldn't say it was hard and once we made up our mind that's what we were going to do you know we'd shot all the little deer i mean my dad had a, a literally a barn full of you know spikes four pointers six pointers eight pointers racks that he'd shot over the years i mean if it was if it had horns he was shooting it right and you know and and i had always seen those up on the wall and he had them hung in our garage at the time and i said you know i want something bigger than that so i knew to get to the next level you know we had to start letting some of them go and um we had our family farm there and, and we did like i say we were still shooting them if they were eight points and then we finally uh moved on and got a another piece of land over in a, in a county next to us which was a, a trophy management county had to have like four on one side and we got some land there and um, then it started you know becoming about age we were we're talking about we're gonna let them get to three and a half you know like that was a huge sacrifice you know now that's not there's not a whole lot of people you'd get frowned upon shooting a three and a half now but but that was our big jump you know back in probably around 2000 or so okay so what about your first out of state hunt uh you know when you you know people always i don't i don't really know how to explain it but for me it's I got to try something different. I want to. I want to go experience new ways to hunt. Can you remember your first out of state hunt? Yeah, absolutely. It was. It was out of state. It was out of country. We went. We went to Canada for like four years in a row, starting when I was fifteen. We would go like that last week of October, first week of November, because I was, you know, still younger then, I guess. And, and we were sitting in tripods, you know, tripods or ladder yep. stands. And yep. I, I remember it was cold and. It was, looking back, it was crazy. I mean, we'd sit out there daylight to dark. I mean, it's not even really the rut yet, but we're daylight to dark. And I remember my first year I went, the first day, I didn't have on the right gloves or didn't have any gloves. I don't remember what happened, but my hands were so cold, I couldn't even uh, grab a hold of the stand to climb down. When I got down, I couldn't operate my zipper or anything. It was the most humbling thing I ever had to do. The guide came in, checked on me at lunch, and brought me some lunch and i had to get him to unzip my zipper because i couldn't feel my hands <laughs> uh, it was very very awkward but you know we, you live and learn that was that was great memories and my dad would always kill a big buck and i they'd always get by me i still was i was still pretty green you know still going back to you know how i was talking about being timid you know i let me i had a couple of good deer i should have killed and but i just didn't have the luck he did and, and still don't you know, he still always gets the bigger one. So we're in Canada. Was that Saskatchewan? The first year we went to Alberta, there Alberta. was um, in North American Whitetail. These guys had an ad 
uh, Alberta World, Alberta Wilderness Guide Service. Um, guys were named Terry Burke Colts and David Bazawi, and they had two different camps. And we would go hunt with them, and I mean, it was there was no bait piles. It was just sitting, like I say, on cut lines or gas lines, pipelines, whatever they were, sitting there daylight to dark. And then we went there one or two years. Then we started going to Saskatchewan, and, you, you know, you'd be in the box blinds then. We, we didn't have heaters, but we'd be in the box blinds, and but you were hunting over, you know, whatever they had out for bait, you know, hay bales or something. And so it, it was four or five years we went in a row. And and then after that, I said, you know, I want to try something different. I want to go to Illinois. And I don't remember exactly what year it was, but we, we got a lease in Illinois, and um, then uh, end up going to Iowa to hunt with a buddy and went with him for two years and you know we just we fell in love with the state and then ended up making the move gotcha so you're you're 15 years old you've been hunting you know for a handful of years and you've seen down in Georgia I the way you've described it is you know some fairly small racked animals right um absolutely nothing gigantic then you make these trips out of state and you start seeing there is a, a whole new world out there as far as big bucks are concerned. What was, can you remember like your first experience with what you would call a big buck by today's standard? Um, yeah, it was in Canada. It was probably, you know, I'd seen some deer, but they were far off. Couldn't get my gun up or scope up, but it was our third or fourth year going to Canada and they had me sitting on a bucket on the ground on this pipeline, you know, right in the middle. So unless the deer came out at 200 yards, he was going to see me and, and spook. And I had this this big buck. Um, he was a you know mid 170s deer came out and seen me and was staring right at me. And I I didn't know what to do, so I just threw my gun up and shoot real quick, and he took off running. And the reason I know how big he was is because I had a buddy that was coming to hunt there the same outfit the next week, and he killed him. He was you know, 175, 177, just this big chocolate massive horn 10-pointer. And, and that was one that, that got away just due to lack of experience or, or whatever whatever it was. But right. I learned a lot of hard lessons. So I learned a lot, lot what not to do. Right, absolutely. So, you know, and, and that's one of those things where if, you know, some people, like, and, I, and I've had, definitely had those experiences where, you know, all of a sudden you see a buck that you've been dreaming of or you see a buck the caliber of which is on the cover of North American Whitetail and you get a little bit of buck fever and you don't really know, you know, there's that saying, you know, act like you've been there. And right, yeah. you know, for me, I had never been there before, so I screwed up several times. Um, right, same. Did, did that experience or other experiences either in Canada, Illinois, or Iowa – make you say you know what i love you georgia and you're always going to have a place in my heart but i'm going to go hunt these other states for bigger bucks yeah that was my first morning in iowa i fell in love with it my first morning in iowa i can't, I'm, i was up there hunting with a buddy i drew a tag and at the time it was like you get a tag every other year i think i believe and i think we were in zone five and walking to my stand i was walking in right as daylight the guy told me he had a uh, a climber hanging down on a tree and I walk down this ditch and as soon as I'm getting in there and the edge of this clover field this big 10 pointer I've seen I spooked him off and I was like oh my gosh it's one of the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life and I'm, I'm not even to my stand yet so I get down in the stand and this same deer 
which was, you know, he's probably a three or four year old looking back and he was about a mid fifties, 10 pointer white rack and tall, same one I spooked. And he, he comes walking right up straight to me and gives me like a 30 yard shot. And I shoot him, hit him a little back and I'm sitting there and I stay there a couple more hours. And then I see like this giant white horn 170, probably 170. I mean, you know, that was, I wasn't carrying a video camera. We didn't have trail cameras back then. And, but truly was one of the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life. And he comes right by me, just wind the back of his head, just shuffling through the leaves. And I was like, you know, this place is special. I mean, I've been to Canada, I've been to Illinois, I've been to Georgia. This right here, this morning right here was the best morning I've ever had by far. And it was my first morning ever. So I was immediately hooked. So Iowa from that point on was a destination that you tried to hunt as much as possible. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, we ended up, um, my dad ended up selling one of his Georgia farms. We bought an Iowa farm and the second, and he added on to it with another piece and it had a house on it. And that's when I said, you know what guys, I'm <laughs> moving to greener pastures. I was old enough to that point to make my own decision. And my dad said, well, if you're going, I'm going. And, uh, you know, we, we've been there ever since. And we, we switched since, you know, sold that farm and built another house and about an hour away, but Southeast Iowa is where we, where we cut our teeth. Gotcha. So it was, it was, that experience was strong enough to where it makes, you know, a guy like you pull up his roots and move to, you know, move to, to live the, the dream basically. At this point, I mean, did you have, were you married? Did you have kids? No, I was single. I was single. I, I don't even remember if I had a girlfriend at the time. I was one of those scared of commitment. So I was just more of like the, <laughs> the dating type guy. So after I got out of college, that was my, my plan. But so, yeah, it all had kind of led up to that moment. You know, I, st- I really fell in love with it when I was 12. And so for the next 10 or 12 years, I mean, I was just living and breathing deer hunting. And then when I just, finally landed in the big buck mecca of the world i was like you know this is it this is this is what i've waited my whole life for i want to start a new life here right so you know that's a that's a turning point in your life what how did your hunting change maybe from i don't know uh, a management standpoint or a strategy standpoint or you know maybe just talk to me a little bit about how your approach towards deer hunting changed when you ended up moving to Iowa. Yeah, it was, it was about, you know, age then we were trying to, at that point we wanted to kill a, you know, a four and a half year old or better. And I still made some mistakes, shot some deer I shouldn't have, or, uh, you know, got caught up in buck fever, whatever you want to call it. But that was really when we kind of made our decision. You know, now it's, it's based on age because these deer that I had, grown up shooting first chance i get i mean you could just about shoot one of those every other time you went because you you know you'd see a 120 or a 130 you know a two-year-old yeah and so they would seem like those guys were just everywhere so it was it was some adjustment it was a lot of i didn't shoot a lot of deer my first couple of years um I, you know I, I would maybe shoot one deer a year or something but it was a lot of looking and learning and just trying to figure out you know where i was and, and what kind of animals i wanted to shoot gotcha i was a little overwhelmed really right right so what what did you take away what did you learn from those i guess 
your first, not necessarily the first time you went to visit Iowa, but the first time you were a resident, the first time, you know, you, you may have had a farm up there that you could, you know, do whatever you wanted to do. What were some of the takeaways that, or, or learning experiences that you took away from those first couple seasons as a, a Iowa resident? Well, I just learned that, you know, I was in what we call the promised land, you know, it was, it was amazing. I had friends that were finding all these big sheds and, um, you know, I, I had my eyes on bigger deer, you know, you'd always hear about these certain ones and I was still kind of just, you were running trail cams. You had, you know, maybe one or two, but you didn't really know what we were doing with them. You know, you, right. you, you would have them out on the occasional scrape or something and, you know, maybe that camera would take a picture once every five minutes, then it probably, the batteries would die in two or three days. I mean, they've come a long way, but, uh, you know, so I was still trying to figure it all out. I mean, if it was in a, you know, an age now where so much information, and, and this is not that long ago, 12 years ago, but this industry has changed so much in 12 years that you have all this information at your, your fingertips and, um, you know, with YouTube and social media and everything. But back then, the only thing I had to learn from was North American Whitetail. And I grew up reading, you know, Bill Winkie, Dick Idle, you know, all these guys who I looked up to reading all these articles but they didn't apply whatsoever to georgia you know we just had right. pine trees and occasional fields and you're reading about inside funnels and so all these articles and everything i've, I've read all my life all started to make sense you know pinch points and you know funnels and you know hogs backs and, and everything on these hardwood ridges and so it all kind of hit me at one time and um but it was it was a lot, a lot of learning. It was still, like I said, I still made a lot of mistakes and I'm still, tr still making mistakes, but, but now, you know, you can, you can share them with others a little easier through the video camera and stuff and look back and try to do better the next time. Right. So for me, like when I started seriously running trail cameras, you know, my approach to that, that changed what my goal was every year. Right. Um, right. Did when you, when, when the technology may have got a little better and you started maybe running trail cameras in the summer and, and getting, uh, what I would call an inventory of the, the caliber of deer that are on the farms that you hunt, did, did that information change what you set out to accomplish every year? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was, that was, in my opinion, the number one you know, greatest use for a trail cam is, is learning your summer inventory. It can be a good and a bad thing, you know, but it determines where you want to hunt, what areas, what farms you want to hunt, and, or what farms you don't want to hunt. And um, So they, they, spoiled, they spoiled me a little bit once I started figuring out summer inventory because I don't want to say it took the fun out of it because that's not the right, because it obviously was still fun, but you kind of knew what was there. Yeah, you get the occasional deer that you wouldn't get on camera, but for the most part, you knew what was there unless it was a kind of a smaller farm that you couldn't monitor as well the deer that were coming and going but so that was a that was a game changer i mean trail nothing in my opinion's changed deer hunting or especially for me you know quite like the trail camera has gotcha so when when that happened and you realized that oh my god there's bigger bucks out here than what i thought did 
what what information specifically out of that did you use or was it just kind of a well i got a picture of him in the summer now i just got to wait for him to walk by my tree stand or did that change how you planned for the the upcoming season as well yeah i mean it it would tell me he was there but um i, I still weren't wasn't using them to their you know their full potential i would uh know the deer was in the area or if i wasn't getting a picture and you know, I'm, and I'm bad about that still to this day. If I'm not getting a picture of a certain deer that I want to hunt, I won't hunt that area. And I've missed out on hunting a lot of my favorite stands that I've hunted in the years past. It's going, oh, no, there's not a deer I want to kill over there. And so, um, and, you know, I got a farm now in Illinois that I hunt, and it's it's kind of a little different because in Illinois you can't, you can't really do summer inventory unless he comes by, you know, one of our mock scrapes or he goes through a fence gap or a trail that you got it on which is very rare on these trails, but you don't know what you got. So when you go over there, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of like the old days. I don't know what's here. I don't really know what's going to come through. So, you, you know, you're always ready. And Iowa, you know, you put the binoculars up, and if he doesn't got a kicker off his G2, he's not, you know, the deer is, you had name of Foster or something that you wanted to shoot. So right. it, it's a little, definitely different. Was that because Illinois? I'm not. I'm not sure on this rule or not. But is that because in Illinois you can't put mineral stations out? That's right. No, no minerals, no bait whatsoever. So, you know, it, it makes it's it's a good and a bad thing. I guess obviously it's good because for, for, they don't want the CWD spread, and I think it's you know they're probably a little overcautious in my opinion. But then you don't know what you know summer inventory. You don't know what you got. You don't know what bucks you need to let go and it's hard to manage them and 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 monitor them year to year because you're just occasionally getting them and choosing not the good picks that you need in the summertime you know over minerals or over a bag of feed and it's a little different but it's also refreshing you go over there and you're like man i've only got a few deer i don't have nothing i want to shoot on camera but there's probably one here because you know i'm not running as many cameras and and I'm, i'm definitely not getting all my picks right right so food plots, right? Obviously that's a a big part of what you're doing now, you know, on these farms that you manage and, you know, that holds deer, that helps the deer get, you know, stay healthy throughout the winters, you know, it provides a whole bunch of different benefits. But once, you know, cuz earlier in the conversation you mentioned that you, you just kind of scratched the tip on what food plots and habitat work was, how has that portion of your life changed from, let's say, even 10 or 15 years ago? Oh, a ton. You know, food plots just kind of evolved. I would say, you know, food plots probably six or eight years ago really started to take shape. And, you know, we, it was more important of year-round nutrition. It was not just putting out something in the fall for the deer. It was, you know, grain in the spring and summer and you know, year-round alfalfa, year-round clover and chicory, you know, whatever it was. And um, habitat improvement, I can honestly say that um, that's something that I, I, I've known a little bit about. My dad's probably more of the, uh, a lot more knowledgeable on that for sure. But I've become a lot more interested in it this year. You know, I've always right. heard of the hinge cutting and the warm season grasses. And obviously we've done that a little bit over time to time, but I've, met a lot of people this year in the last few months that are super smart guys when it comes to habitat improvement and truly you know holding bucks 
on your farm and because our farm is great it, it's it's a lot of timber it's big pretty hardwoods but it's too open and makes for a lot of social stress on the deer can't hold a lot of big mature bucks so these last couple of months as, as far as habitat improvement it's it's really been what we've been focusing on and i've been learning a ton of stuff so you know habitat improvement over all those things you talked about was the last thing to really catch on for me right so have you seen uh, a direct benefit to any of that habitat work that you've done yes there's the warm season grasses that's that's a huge thing um we also got a farm we hunt in kansas and you know we got a pretty good amount of timber from that area but there's a lot of warm season grasses and crp that that, that we didn't plant some on our neighbors and these deer would rather go live in that uh, CRP grass than they would in the timber that's on the creek. So last couple of years, it's really opened up our eyes. And so we've been putting a lot more of our farm into these native grasses, which is, it's expensive, you know, it's a, <laughs> so we, you can't do it all at one time, but we'll take 10 or 15 acres on in certain places and, and, and maybe try to put it in on a farm, five acres here, a couple acres there, but, but, but you know that stuff is it, it's kind of turning your average farm into a dynamite farm just because it's it, it's something that you know i guess has always been there but now that you can treat them and plant them correctly right they, i mean you can make your own bed in there if you, if you got a couple years right all right so i want to change things up just a bit now and i want you to describe to us like there are i'm looking at a map of my property and uh-huh. I have a little magnet on places that I, I have tr- tree stands or I've hung tree stands in the past. And there's one particular tree stand that I just absolutely love to hunt every rut. I want you to explain to us in as much detail as you possibly can. One of your favorite either tree stands or ground blinds or whatever one of your favorite hunting locations and describe to us in detail, like the terrain and, and how deer funnel through it and, and all that stuff. Well, I'm going to call a stand we got, we call skyscraper. And, and on this particular piece of land, um, it's a big white oak and there's a hickory right next to it. And sorry, boy, what's up here? But uh, it's right in the middle of like a 200-acre block of timber. And when you go shed hunting, and, and when you get in there and you look at it, like, oh, this is a good spot for sand, you know, nothing major, but it's a flat, you know. And where we are in southern Iowa, there are a lot of rolling hills, you know. There's a lot of cows, a lot of cow pasture type stuff. And if it's somewhat open, it's going to be cleared. And if, if it's steep, it's going to be timber. But this is a – it could be a huge field in the middle of the timber because it is flat. It's got – you know, your big white oaks and your shag bark hickories and a few red and black oaks, not a lot. But when you're shed hunting, this particular 200-acre block of timber, which is to be tough to shed hunt, but no, and most of the time you're looking certain ridges, you know, you're following the deer trails or whatever it is, and you always lead up to this stand we call skyscraper. All the, the terrain takes you there, the trails take you there, and it is, it is the heart of the timber. And... It, it has a few scattered cedars that you can see from the stand, but it's not like the bedding area is great, but right. it's just one of those places that, you know, you just have to keep an open mind. And, 
And that's what's so great about these interactive maps now is that you can, when you find a good spot, you can pin it on your phone. And, and it was one of those places that it just kept, every time we were in there, man, we're, we're at this stand again, you know, and, and you'd find it during turkey season or you'd find it during shed season. And, and there was already an older stand in this particular one. So anytime you see that, you, you're automatically, you know, figure somebody spent some time here it must be pretty good but but it was just one of those flat spots in the timber i can't really say that it's you know some a great funnel or some great ridge but it just everything funnels right to it right is it is it like a a pinch point or is it near bedding or near food or near water yeah well you know it's got food in early october when the acorns are dropping we don't hunt it till then we, we will not go into this stand until the first cold front you know around halloween and it's it's not even really a, a pinch point per se um as far as what you would look at on a topo map you'd look at on topo map and it'd just be kind of flat but um, there's a couple of really big ridges that are pinch points but they lead to this right. so you got like three or four ridges tops that all kind of come to this and it flattens out and you know deer they're don't want to say they're lazy but they're always going to take the path the, the you know the easiest path to travel and anytime they can walk on flat ground or steep ground they're going to do it all all day long and and these deer it's 200 acres of timber so none of it is exceptionally thick um that is one of the things we're working on now trying to make it a little better bedding area but but in the rut and and i've said it you know, a couple of times that maybe in a little early and, you know, deer may be in there eating acorns or something, but they're not really moving through there. But in the rut, just because the this big block of timber is a bedding area, those cruising bucks are going to come by this stand. They may not be within bow range. They may be, you know, 60, 70 yards, but in this spot, you're going to see them. And it's, uh, it's got just enough, you know, multiple rows and ashwood um, ash on the ground that, you know, you can call good in here and the deer can... You know, I just like calling in the timber. That's, that's one of my favorite things to do in the rut. And this spot, because it's in the middle, you just feel like you can get in there and feel like your shed horns are just a microphone. I mean, your, <laughs> your rattling horns are just a microphone, you know. It just echoes through the timber and these, these big, beautiful white oaks. And it's just a, it's a dynamite spot. And that's the first spot that came to mind. I got a, I got a lot of spots I like, but, but a, that's a spot that me and my dad share a lot. It's kind of his spot, I guess, but. When you talk about a dynamite rut stand, you know, if I had to, you had to say, okay, man, it's November the 7th. You've got to go some spot on this farm and, and kill a mature animal, and you got five days to do it in. You know, put me right there. Gotcha. Can you see a long way from this stand? Um, it varies. You know, you can see you can see probably 100, 150 yards. You know, and in the timber, a lot of times, especially in the rut, um, you, you know, you can see catch glimpses and stuff. And if I see horns on a deer you know i'm always looking for excuse to rattle i mean i probably blind rattle a little more than i should but <laughs> he's got horns and he's moving and i can't get a look at him I'm, I'm hitting the horns together and sometimes not hard and i'll turn where they can't see me but you know probably 150 200 yards you know max perfect perfect yeah i love those i love those days that you're talking about where where it's like one of those high pressure mornings there's hardly any wind you probably walked on frost 
on really loud leaves to get to the stand. And then right, yeah. right as the sun comes up with like all the strength you've ever had in your life, you throw those horns together and it just echoes throughout the entire right. timber, man. I love, I love. And I'm probably that. running every deer out of the timber. Probably, <laughs> I'm or, still doing that. But you got to do it, though, right? Man. You got to do it. Or they're coming downwind 300 yards and they're busting you. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that'll say, "No, do not blind call," but it's too much fun, man. Yeah. I, I just like rattling, I like hearing those horns, and uh, you know, like I say, the sun coming up and that frost on those tree limbs. It's that's what that's what we live for absolutely absolutely now we touched a little bit about this at at the you know a while ago but you got a boy who's three you got a girl who's 11 months as a dad how do you plan on introducing your own kids into hunting yeah that's one of those things that i'm going to take it you know, like I said, it's a lifestyle. It's a little different than when I was a kid, but um, I, I'm gonna—I want to say when he's ready. But he, he would go. He would went turkey hunting this morning when we when I woke up at 5:15. He would have went. So I can't really say when he's ready, but he's three. So um, I, I mean, he goes. He'll he'll go sit with me in a when we go dove hunting, or I mean, he's he's been in the blind when we killed two or three bucks so far. When 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 he was I think one when he was a year and a half couple when he was two so he knows about it but you know in Iowa as long as they're with an adult they can start hunting whenever and I, I don't really have a magic number I think I'll know you know but he, he's he's a smart kid so probably five you know if, if he's capable of killing a deer and uh, or killing a turkey you know we'll definitely definitely try it but he's probably old enough that next spring I'm going to consider it hard letting him, letting him try to shoot a turkey with a 410 or something. Right, right. I don't know if my daughter's necessarily ready to pull the trigger on a gun yet, but I think this year, um, you know, I'll probably go out and hunt the mornings with my wife and then come back for a late breakfast, pick her up, go out a couple hours, see if we can't call anything in late morning. But I think this is going to be... How old is she? She's five. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and that's what's so great about turkey hunting. You know, you got gra- the ground blinds, you know. When I was growing up, you didn't have that. And these right. Easterns, you know, they're so tough that you know, we couldn't get a turkey within 100 yards of a 5-year-old. But now you can go just put this blind up in the middle of the field and get it where they can just barely see out the windows and they can move and play their games or whatever they need to do and until the turkey shows up. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you can keep them quiet, right. <laughs> I think that's the magic age when they yeah. just, when they realize how to be quiet. Then you know they're ready. Absolutely, yeah. She is not ready for that part of it, though. <laughs> She's a talker. <laughs> you have to keep her entertained. Outside voice is what I always tell Cash. Everybody Absolutely. else tells their kids inside voice. I'm like, no, we have an outside voice around here. <laughs> that's funny. So, uh, as far as hunts are concerned, what are you looking forward to? You know, obviously Iowa. I mean, I look forward to that, and I'm a resident every year. But, like, for me, I, I'm taking an elk hunt this year. Do you have any other uh, big hunts that you're excited to go on uh, this upcoming 2018 season? Yeah, definitely elk hunt, man. I mean, I love elk in the rut. You know, that late September, I, I hope to be somewhere out west until every late September until the day that I die. I mean, 
I actually got into filming through turkey hunts, and I used to love turkey hunting more than anything. And then, you know, I was introduced to, you know, Midwest Whitetails of the Bow, and that became my passion. And about the last, you know, six or eight years, you know, we've been traveling out to Colorado or New Mexico, wherever it is, and, and elk hunting. And right now, I mean, I just, I love that. It's just, just as much as anything. It's a close second to those few magical days in November. Right. Absolutely. Well, my friend, uh, Jeff, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking time to hop on the, the podcast today. If people want to learn more about the Lindsay Way or check out your television show, where should we send them? Yeah, the LindsayWay.com. And we, you know, we have our online uh, store bios and stuff on there. And then obviously Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We're all over those every day. Try to keep it up to date, real content. Perfect, my friend. Well, thanks for hopping on. Hi, bud. Thanks so much. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Jeff Lindsay for coming on the podcast and chatting with us today. Again, if you haven't already, go check out The Lindsay Way. Huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Huge shout out to the partners of this podcast. Ripcord, Exodus, Lone Wolf, Ozonics, Wasp Archery. Thank you guys very much for uh, your support and your continued support. And, uh, you know, thank you very much. And, <laughs> like, what do I do now? I got to close it down. And I'm going to just keep it short today. You guys know where to find me on social media, Nine Finger Chronicles and Sportsman's Nation. If you're going to be in a tree, please, for the love of God, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.